0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning again. Today's message is titled, But God, But God. As you have just heard, I'm going to walk through ten verses this morning from a little book in the New Testament called Ephesians. I'm going to give you a brief introduction to set the context before I start my first point of the sermon. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter from a prison in Rome while under Roman persecution, Paul, while in prison, wrote this letter near the end of his two year stay, which is part of what we call the prison epistles. The letter was written around 62 A.D., and its recipients were Jews and Gentiles who who were called, who Paul called in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 1, saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. We have to love Paul's endurance and faithfulness, right? He knew what it meant to fight the good fight of faith. He knew he was saved to share the gospel to all nations, displaying God's glory to the universe. Paul's heart was continually singing, Behold our God, and our God is greater, as we, as fellow saints, just sang earlier. Church, Paul experienced the spiritual deadness that we will discuss this morning. Paul experienced what it meant to be made alive in Christ as well. And while in prison, he glorified God by being a good steward of his time and divine call, and he furthered the gospel of grace through his writings. Church, we need to understand that there was a gospel conflict in the area of Ephesus, just as there is today, all over the world, right? They had coins, statues, temples, and other items that proclaimed the gospel of Augustus, the great emperor, they're a great emperor. But the Apostle Paul had a passionate pursuit of God's glory, and by God's sovereign call, he proclaimed the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ to this God-hating culture. Oh, how blessed we are, church, to have the God-breathed, inspired in holy scriptures right before our eyes this morning. So let's see what God, through the Apostle Paul, has to say to them and us today in Ephesians 2, 1-10. So let's get started. The theme of the message, the theme of the message is we are saved to display God's glory to the universe. We are saved to display God's glory to the universe. My first point of the sermon is apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead, spiritually dead. Notice verse one, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice, church, the apostle, when referring to who they were before becoming Christians, he didn't say they were spiritually sick, right? He didn't say uh, almost dead or even spiritually confused. No, church, the apostle, who was commissioned by Christ to speak on God's behalf, says, you were dead, dead in your sin. Guess what this word dead means in the original language? Dead. <laughs> Necros in the Greek. The word literally means the physical condition of being deceased, deprived of life. And we know from this context, the Apostle Paul is speaking in spiritual terms, right? So bottom line, all people outside of the saving relationship with Christ are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead in what? In what? Our trespasses and sins, right? Church, this is as one of my brothers in Christ likes to say, our BC condition, meaning before Christ. This was before our conversion. Apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead. Notice when speaking of spiritual deadness, Paul says, you, meaning the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesus. Then in verse 3, he says, all followed by the rest of mankind. Church, the Apostle Paul is not preparing this to describe the degenerates of society, the worst of mankind, the pagans, enslaved to idolatry even. He is saying everyone... Everyone falls under this condition. As my first point indicates, apart from Christ, we are all spiritually dead. The Apostle Paul says the same thing to the church at Colossae. The Bible says in 2.16, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Some of you might be thinking, wait a second here. Wait a second. Yes, I understand that people are sinners, right? We, We all fall short of God's glory, no doubt. But spiritually dead? I know so many people, non-Christians, who appear to be spiritually alive. Seeking God, seeking God through their religion, praying, reading the scriptures. They, they seem spiritually alive to me. Misguided? Sure. But they definitely seem spiritually alive in some sense. Of course they seem alive. Verse 2 and 3, Paul says, what does he say? He says what? We want, they once walked, they followed, they lived Church, these are action verbs, right? They were doing things. But Romans 3.11 says, no one understands God. No one seeks God. How do we explain this? How do we explain this? Yes, people seek the things only God can give, but they are not seeking the God of the Bible, the only true living God. R.C. Sproul says it this way, people do not seek God. They seek after the benefits that only God can give them. The sin of fallen mankind is this. Man seeks the benefits of God while fleeing from God himself. We are by nature fugitives. So true, so true, right? People seek a God, the God they have made up in their own imagination. But no one outside of the redeemed nature seeks the one true living God of the Bible, right? Church, outside of Christ, we are like the walking dead, right? We're the walking dead. Spiritual zombies, if you will. Let's consider this truth. Think about your life prior to being a Christian, uh, prior to being born again from the Spirit of God. Did you really seek God? I know I used to think that I was what they call a seeker, right? But in hindsight, I was seeking to serve myself. I was seeking to satisfy my flesh. I wanted love. I wanted peace. I wanted comfort. I wanted redemption. And whatever or whoever would grant me those things, I was willing to embrace. But make no mistake about it, I was, as verse 1b through 2 states, walking in my trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Come on, give it. Who is he? Satan. Amen. Satan, the spirit that is and all will, always will be working in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of mine. Church, I was, you were, and if anyone's sitting here today as an unbeliever, you are. By nature, a child, wrath, under God's judgment. Just like the rest of mankind, that's outside the saving grace of Christ. Has anyone heard the saying, when preaching the gospel, you must give the bad news before you give the good news, right? You ever hear that? You can't really understand that good news unless you truly understand the depths of the bad news. Well, that's biblical. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here in the first three chapters, right? He's reminding God's people who, who they were outside the saving grace of Christ. As theologians say, he's given them an honest, hard description of the doctrine of man. I agree with John Piper and many other theologians that this section of Scripture, verse 1 and 3, this, in this chapter is, Paul, is part of Paul's doctrine of total depravity. Some of you guys know this doctrine, right? Many of you guys, lo- like me, like me, love this doctrine and appreciate this doctrine of total depravity. Some of you guys might be familiar with it, but my hope and prayer is we'll walk out of here today with eyes to see this biblical doctrine of man for his glory and your joy. For I truly believe we cannot fully know how awesome salvation is until we know how, where we were when God brought us out of the world into this kingdom. Church, Paul understood, the Protestant reformers and heroes of our faith understood that apart from Christ, we have nothing to offer God. Without God's amazing grace, we are, as the great song says, a wretch. So let me give you a good theological definition of the doctrine of total depravity. Theologian and writer Richard D. Phillips says this, This is precisely the teaching of the Bible about the moral and spiritual condition of man and women. Our hearts are corrupt, our minds are depraved, and our desires are enslaved to the passions of sin. Our hearts are corrupt, our minds are depraved, and our desires are enslaved to the passions of our sin. This is total depravity. This is how God sees every human being that's not a born-again Christian, washed by the blood of Jesus, transformed into a new creation. Romans 8-7 describes the depravity of man like this. Paul says, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws. It never will. Here are other ways God views us apart from saving relationship with Christ, church. The Bible says we are blind. We are haters of God, lovers of darkness, sick, suppressors of truth. In verse 3, like verse 3 says, children of wrath. There it is. The word of God itself proclaiming all mankind is under God's judgment, spiritually dead, this is heavy. This is heavy, church. This is why our only hope is in God, and God alone. This was me before God saved me. Again, this was my wife, my wife Amy before God saved her, Pastor Chris, everyone who is sitting here today that's a believer. This was us. The hard truth is, this is where everyone who isn't a true Christian right now is. If you are here today and you haven't come to God through faith alone, by grace alone, Christ alone, for His glory, alone, this is you. Like I said earlier, this is bad news. It's bad news, but it's biblical truth. God's divine analysis of man. To be honest with you guys, we can't beg for bread unless we know we're starving, right? We can't run to the doctor unless we we know we're sick. We can't run to Christ unless we acknowledge we need a Savior. And that's exactly what Christ said when He declared, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? Church, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead, separated from God, separated from the love of God, the saving love of God. Apart from Christ, God is not our Heavenly Father, but our sovereign judge. Some might say, yeah, but God's love. God's love. I don't believe God's angry with anyone. True, love is one of God's attributes, right? It's biblical. God is love. That's a Bible verse. And we will shine. He will shine so brightly as we move ahead in this passage. We will see his love. But make no mistake about it: God is also what holy, right, just, wrathful. The triune God of Scripture doesn't lower his standard just because we as human beings miss the mark. He doesn't grade us on a curve. God requires perfection. His nature didn't change when Adam sinned in the garden, disobeyed God by eating the. the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, he promised Adam he would die, and death entered human history at that moment. Adam died spiritually, right? And the process of physical death began. Yet we are still commanded, still commanded as the Gospel of Matthew states, to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But we fail. We fail. The reality is exactly what the Bible says. We all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all fall short of God's glory, God's majesty, God's holiness. And from the time, that, that that's right from the time of conception. Right from the time of conception. As precious as my eight week old Jeremiah is. Made an image of God, right? Fearfully and wonderfully made. He's spiritually born in this condition we're talking about. We are born image bearers of God with a spiritually dead soul. Church, we sin. We run from God because it's our nature. Most of you guys know that this is what we call original sin. That part right there. Church, all over the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, King David quotes, even talks about it, right? In Psalm 51, 5, King David says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's biblical, right? Right? How can he be sinful at birth? How can he be sinful at birth? King David recognized that he had a nature of sin, a fallen nature that was consumed by sin and self-centeredness. He knew he was in Adam. Remember the first point, apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead? When we get deep down into it, there's only two foundational positions before God. There are only two categories. Notice in the outline before you that that was handed out tonight, you are either in Adam or in Christ. Nobody's neutral. There's no neutrality. We are either in Adam or in Christ. The Apostle Paul gives us a good explanation of this truth. The Bible says in Romans 5.17 that, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, which is who? Adam, right? Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Christ, through one man, Jesus Christ, a little seed of hope during our hard, hard analysis of man before us, before we get into the second point. So if you're not convinced, if you're not convinced yet that apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead, you will be after this. Let's get some more words from the living and true sovereign God. I'm going to run down some Bible passages that confirmed this doctrine of total depravity. Verses that the Apostle Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ himself would say a loud amen to. Second Chronicles 6.36, there's no one who does not sin. Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we turn everyone to his own way. Micah 7.2-4, the godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. Luke 18.19, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good. But God alone. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them. Romans 8, 7, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Church, I, I could do this all day. <laughs> I could do this. There's so many Bible verses. There's so many Bible verses about this. Despite what the world tells us, despite what false teachers like Joel Osteen tell us, or the Roman Catholic Pope tells us, people, all people, all people are sinful, fallen, totally depraved, and this should give us more, give these verses, one through three, more weight. Now, let's go back to it. One through three, and you are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Church, it is exactly how my first point of sermon says. Apart from Christ, we are all spiritually dead. So now what? Now what? Is this it? Excuse me. Are we without hope? What do we do? Do we get religious? Do we turn over a new leaf? Do we try our best to obey God and hope maybe he'll forgive us and save us? Do we hope, do we do as the Muslims do, right? And uh, just maybe hope that God will weigh our good and bad deeds and come up with a merciful verdict? Do we do as the Catholics do and follow a synergistic, sophisticated system of works and grace mixed together? Or do we join the Church of Latter-day Saints, of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and profess the doctrine that we are saved by grace after all we can do? All these views of salvation will lead you to hell and eventually take you to the lake of fire. I'll tell you what we can do. Nothing. There's nothing we can do. We are dead. That's it. Notice verse 4, though. (laughs) Notice verse 4. But God. You know what? Let's say it together. One, two, three. But God. There it is, a remarkable phrase. A remarkable phrase. The late theologian R.C. Sproul's two favorite words in the Bible. But God. In the midst of sin, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of wrath, in the midst of no hope, in the midst of a totally depraved condition, in the midst of being bound to hell, we hear from God himself. But God, church, God steps in with amazing grace, mercy, and love to bring us out of Adam into Christ. Theologian and apologist Dr. James White, when commenting on verse 4, says, These words, but God, have been described as one of the most precious phrases in Scripture, and rightly so. Church, the apostle Paul draws our attention to the depths of our depravity in order to magnify the mercy and grace of God Saving his people like a black cloth, right? Like a black cloth on which a a beautiful diamond sits. Think about it that way. Paul gives us the diamond of the gospel with two glorious words, but God. Notice God's gracious and sovereign action stand in wonderful contrast to verses 1 and 3. We were lifeless, hopeless, depraved, under God's condemnation, but God came to rescue us and make us alive together with Christ. And this is what my second point is all about. And this is a beautiful, beautiful truth. The second point of the sermon is, in Christ, we are spiritually alive. Remember, there are two categories of people in the world, Adam and those that are in Christ. Paul shows the church at Ephesus in the surrounding areas that, yes, they were. They were in Adam, bound for an eternal life of misery, And hopelessness, but God has brought them to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all those who have repented and turned to Christ alone for salvation are now in Christ and in Christ and with Christ for all eternity. Let's walk through these precious verses. Starting with verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Notice in your outline, God's riches, I mean God's mercy, God's grace, God's love. Church, the riches of God's grace, mercy, and love make it possible for sinners to be saved. In his mercy, he doesn't give us what he deserves. That's his mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve, which is what? What do we deserve? Judgment. Hell. Amen. Amen. And in his grace, he gives us what we do not deserve, salvation and peace. And as <clears throat> as we said, in the, as uh, Paul said in the first chapter of Ephesians, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, that's in Ephesians chapter 1. Church, notice God's character. Let's notice, let's see God's character here. What prompted God to save us, believers in Christ? His sovereign mercy, his sovereign love, and his sovereign grace Notice verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Friends, the Bible is clear. The triune God of Scripture is merciful God. The Bible says in Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. The prophet Micah proclaims, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Lamentations 3.23 says, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the sovereign Lord of God, the sovereign love of God, the sovereign love of God that we just sang about, how awesome, how encouraging is this? Which Notice uh, verse 4b. Because of the great love which he lo- with which he loved us. The great love, church. Because of what love? The great love. Church, God's love for His people is remarkable. It's remarkable. It's awesome. Remember, at one time we were dead in our sins, walking with the devil, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We deserve nothing but judgment from the Almighty God, yet He chose to pour out His blessings on us, those who have bowed the knee to King Jesus. The Apostle Paul also spoke about God's love towards the elect in Romans 8. I mean, Romans 5, verse 8, showing the church in Rome that God's love came before they cleaned up their act, before they turned over a new leaf, before they tried to come before him with their dirty works, his filthy works. It came, church, while they were totally depraved, before they made any step towards God. Church, the sovereign Lord God stepped in for the Christians in Rome just as he did To the faithful saints in Ephesus, the Bible says this in Romans 5, verse 8. But God, there it is again, right? But God, arguably the two greatest words in Scripture. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about God's love. How about John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have what? Somebody gave everlasting life. Praise God. And then my favorite attribute of God, probably one of my favorite words in the Bible, we have God's love, we have his mercy. What's next? Grace. Grace. God's amazing, sovereign grace. In this passage, God graces us by making us alive together with Christ and saving us. Notice verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Church, this tells us that God, by His grace, saves certain people and makes them alive with Christ. What does this mean to be made alive with Christ? This means to be born again. This is the doctrine of regeneration. Remember, we were dead. Well, this Spirit of God gives us new spiritual life. Church, to be born again means, like Paul says here in verse 5b, to be made alive with Christ. This is essential. This is essential. This is not an option. You must be born again. I remember I heard a story of an old preacher named George Whitfield. A lot of you guys probably heard of him. And he used to preach just every day, just preaching the gospel. And so some lady came up to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, I notice you always say the same thing over and over again. Why do you always say that you must be born again? And he said this to the lady, Dear lady, Because you must be born again. (laughs) So true. So true. Jesus said you can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. Forget getting in, right? You can't even see it unless you're born again. Again, this is the doctrine of regeneration. As the outline says, or the new birth, as theologians like to call it. All true Christians who were once spiritually dead now are reborn in Christ, alive together in Christ. How awesome is this, church? No wonder the world calls us Jesus freaks, Bible thumpers, right? Fanatics. You better believe we're zealous for the gospel. Are you kidding me? We have been miraculously lifted out of hell into the kingdom of heaven. Praise the Lord for this doctrine of regeneration that remedies our total depravity. Let me remind you of something, to church. If you're a Christian, you have witnessed at least one miracle in your life. At least one. Look in the mirror. Your proof of God's miraculous work still working today. A good illustration of this new birth is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, Remember when Jesus' friend Lazarus died? Four days later, he showed up at the tomb. Jesus showed up at the tomb. He said, Lazarus, come out. Well, Lazarus came out of that tomb. But what had to happen first? (laughs) We talked about this a few months ago in Sunday school. He needed to be made alive, right? He needed to be made alive. A corpse isn't going to walk out of anything. No less an ancient tomb. Church, Lazarus was given life by the God-man himself. Christ resurrected him and made him alive. So my point is, just like Lazarus couldn't have come out of the tomb until he was made alive, no unbelieving, walking dead, spiritual zombie will ever believe on Christ until he's born again. This is what happens to all Christians. This is what happened to me. This will happen to you if you're a believer. And if you're an unbeliever, you need it to happen to you. And if you are a professed Christian but never had this, you don't know what I'm talking about right now. You never had this heart change, no zeal for the gospel, no love for God's Word, no desire to repent from your sins, no joy in the Lord, I urge you to plead before God to make you alive in Christ. Quit playing church. Quit playing church. Come to Christ alone, become part of the church. This happened to me eight years ago. My wife was born again, probably like more like 30 years ago, and everyone who's here today was truly saved. It's been born again. Apostle Paul addressed the church here at Ephesus, telling them how this new birth happened. And how did it happen? How did it happen? We see here at the end of verse five it says, By grace you have been saved. Dr. David Gusick rightly observed, Paul's compelled to add that this is the work of God's grace in no way involving man's merit or effort. Our salvation from spiritual death is all God's work for the undeserving. Church, we are made spiritually alive by God's sovereign mercy, sovereign love, and His grace. Church, there's another awesome doctrine. There's another awesome doctrine here that's uh, indicated in this passage, which is part of the doctrines of grace just like the total depravity one, also called Doctors of Grace, Reformed Theology, and it's God's irresistible grace. God's irresistible grace. Don't be scared of this doctrine. It's glorious. Notice the outline. God uses his irresistible grace. So what is this doctrine of irresistible grace? Why do so many theologians see this doctrine in this text and all over Scripture? R.C. Sproul states this, gives us a little definition of this doctrine. He says, God actively intervenes in the lives of the elect to make absolutely sure that they are saved. The prophet Ezekiel says it this way. I will give you a new heart, right? I'll give you a new spirit. I will put within you, I will remove the heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Don't we always pray that for unbelievers? Give them a heart of flesh. Take out that heart of stone. And the Lord Jesus confirms his spiritual truth as well. When he said in John 6, All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Church, if you came to Christ, it is only because God the Father by the Spirit gave gave you to Christ. Bottom line, you were chosen by God. Paul says it this way in chapter 1. Chapter 1, he says, Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian today, God, in His sovereign love, His mercy, His grace, placed His saving love on you before you were even born. Talk about personal. And use the gospel of Jesus Christ. As verse 5 says, and made you alive together with Christ. God with the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit brought you from spiritual deadness to to life. And by your new will, your new born again from above, heart, you ran to Him. You ran to Him with an open hand and were saved. Make no mistake about about it. Salvation is of the Lord. Even our running to Christ is a grace-driven effort. This is how God saves someone. I know there's a chance that some of you thought you repented and believed, and then, and then you were born again. Right? A lot of people learn that in, uh, when they're first saved. A lot of churches, a lot of people teach that. But I hope after seeing this passage, you have acknowledged that you were spiritually dead. And God first had to make you alive before you can humble yourself and come to him. Just like the Lazarus illustration, right, that I mentioned. He couldn't come out of the grave until he was first brought to life. We can't trust in Christ alone until we were made spiritually alive. So church, if these doctrines don't create in you a passionate pursuit of God's glory, I don't know what will. I mean, this is powerful. The gospel is God-centered, not man-centered. The good news is the gospel of God. God is the Lord and master of our salvation, not us. And this truth displays God's glory to the universe, as as the theme states. That's why I named the sermon, But God. It's all God, all right? It's all God. Not God a man, but God. And this is such good news. This is such good news. Even practically, this is good news. This means we can go, we can have so much hope when we as Christians preach the gospel to the unbelieving world. Are you kidding? kidding? Imagine knowing that we're spiritually dead, people are spiritually dead, knowing that people, unbelievers, are slaves to sins, unable to come to God on their own, how could we spend time evangelizing? It would be like hanging out in the cemetery, right? Waiting for the dead bones to be raised. But what if God promised that He would raise those, those dead bones, right? Then I would, better believe, I would surely be motivated to enter that cemetery waiting for a miracle. And that's exactly, that's exactly the spiritual reality of what God does. And that should motivate us, that should motivate us today even, that should motivate us today to join the street outreach. We're going out after the service to pass out gospel tracks and preach the gospel to uh, our neighbors. God has his people in the world church. Those elect have been chosen and we will be saved by God's irresistible grace in his right timing. Just as our sister Nadine said earlier, right? God's Word never comes back void. God will save who He wants to save, and He uses us as a vessel to bring dead man to life. How humbling is that? He uses us to bring dead men to life, to preach the Gospel, to share our faith to them. Church, all of us who are Christians today have been called by God, given new spiritual life, made alive together with Christ. We are saved as the second point states, in Christ, we are spiritually alive. And as the theme indicates, it is all to display God's glory to the universe. Notice verse 6. We find we find out over here that uh, the ones who are called by God's Spirit, by this irresistible grace, and born again alive in Christ, saved from God's wrath, have been, as the verse states, have been raised up. Raised up with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places. This is is so powerful. Seated with Christ. Talk about displaying God's glory to the universe. We are raised up with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places. And notice, this ain't the future. This is current. These are current realities. These aren't future hopes merely. These are spiritual realities right now. God sees us now through the blood of Christ, holy and pure and blameless. And we are raised, reigning with him. I love how Dr. Bob Utley summarizes verse 7 where he says, where it says that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Utley states this. He says, we are God's trophies of grace to the angelic word, world. That's what that verse means. We are God's trophies to the angelic world. God's trophies. God is displaying to the angelic realm that he is making something special in us and through us for his glory. God's trophies display to the angelic realm of how glorious God is, working in and through us redeemed rebels. Now we see in verse 8 how this happened. Paul's telling the church at Ephesus that they were enemies of God, but now they have been united to Christ. But how did this happen? How did this happen? If anyone here today who's not sure that they're saved and uh, who feels that maybe they had to do something to cooperate, like add their works to their faith, they just never had that assurance of salvation. This next verse will be a blessing. Verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. Wait a sec. Did Paul just say that? Did he just say that? In verse 5? He said they were saved from God's judgment by grace. Church, he reiterates his point here and says, you have been saved. Do you know why he says those same words twice? Because it's our nature. It's our nature, friends, as sinful human beings, to want to work for our salvation. Because... I mean, this is what all false religions do, right? It's what all false religions do, except biblical. Biblical Christianity is the only religion that is by grace. All the rest of them, they're trying to earn their salvation. This is what separates us from every religion in the world. Two words, free grace. Every religion says we must do things for God so he will forgive. But Christianity says Jesus did it all. I love how Christian poet Jefferson Bethke compares false religions to Christianity. He says, religion says, do. Jesus says, done. Religion says, slave. Jesus says, son. Religion makes you blind. Jesus makes you see. Church, Jesus said it's finished, right? Jesus says it's finished. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone, by Scripture alone, for His glory alone. How glorious is that? That's the five solas of the Reformation. Wow. So tell me, tell me, tell me. Tell me those truths do not display God's glory to the universe. Church, the Bible's clear. Salvation is of the Lord. It took me some time for God to lift this veil and give me eyes to see this truth. We are not at peace with God if we think our works of obedience have any part of our salvation. For the Bible says all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose, right? Why'd he come if we can earn our way? Why would he go through all that? Now, the next part of passage tells us the instrument, the instrument of how this grace saves us. It isn't through our good works. It's not through penance. It's not through prayers or even baptism. It's not even through baptism or even going to church. God saves us one way. He uses one thing. Verse 8 states this, For by grace you are saved through faith. There it is. The empty hand of faith. The empty hand of faith. We come to God trusting in Him, trusting in Jesus, trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the natural response of those who are made alive. The Reformers call this essential doctrine um, where the church stands or falls sola fide, which basically means faith alone. For all who came here tonight as an unbeliever, or felt you were on the fence maybe, or maybe you've been a professed Christian for a while, but you never truly, truly were born again by God's sovereign mercy, love, and grace. Well, this verse tells us, tells you how you can be saved. Verse 8, I'm going to read it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice the text. Notice, notice what follows. Notice verse 8b and 9. It says, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Right? God loves a person before the foundation of the world, puts him in the book of life, brings the gospel to him through through one of his children, calls him to himself while making him brand new. And don't miss this. God gave them, gave us Christians a gift of faith. Faith is a gift. It's a gift of God. Yet, notice the gift of God in this passage. Notice in this passage, the gift of God is not just the faith, but the grace as well. Bottom line, the whole work of salvation is a gift. It's all a gift. Our salvation of God, our salvation of God's glory display. It just displays how glorious and powerful God is. It's all God. And to tell you the truth, that's the whole Christian life as well. Right? You guys know that. It's a whole Christian life. We're saved by grace through faith, and we grow closer to God. Same way, by grace through faith. The only way we're going to be able to display God's glory to the universe is by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Savior. Now, we come to the third and final point. Excuse me. We cannot stop verse 9. I know, I am aware that many evangelicals stop there, Right? They emphasize that our salvation has nothing to do with works, right? We hammer that home. It has nothing to do with works. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful, friends. We need to submit to the whole counsel of God, right? And study the Bible in its context. So my third point in the sermon is this. Christ, in Christ, God produces good works through us. So the first point was apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead. second point was in Christ, we're made spiritually alive. And now the third and final point of the sermon is in Christ, God produces good works through us. So remember, works, works have nothing to do with salvation. Yet, we are called to do good works. So what's that about, right? John Calvin said it this way, We are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves us is never alone. It's never alone because it is always followed by good works and obedience to God. So notice verse 10 says, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you catch that? Before the foundation of the world, God created these good works in us. Now by grace, we are called to live them out. John the Beloved says it this way. Whoever says, I know him. Who's he talking about? Who knows who? Jesus, right? Whoever knows Jesus, whoever says I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's tough. Tough words. Jesus said the same thing though, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This should make sense to us now, church. This has to make sense to us after be reminded that we've been made alive, united to Christ, his spirit lives in us. Of course, of course, we are going be called to follow him, to obey him, to display his glory to the universe because salvation has nothing to do with us merely. It's about God. It's always been about him. We are we were slaves to sin, but now we're as Paul calls us, slaves to Christ. This is so essential. Church, we need to have a God-centered view of salvation because the Bible has a God-centered view of salvation. Many in our day have this view of the gospel that says we are saved merely to go to heaven. That's why we're saved. This is not true. Pastor Chris tells us that all the time, right? He reminds us. This is not true. That's not why we're saved. Heaven is a, a promise for the elect, no doubt. Those Christians who have died, that are with the Lord, are definitely, that's definitely something that... uh we can look to. That's one of the promises God gives us. We will be with the Lord for all eternity in heaven and then new heavens and new earth. But until that time comes, right? Until he calls us home, we are called to produce good works. To display to the universe how great our God is. This word workmanship here in the original language means it means poetry. It means like a work of art. God's masterpiece. Notice in the outline. God's people are God's masterpiece. God makes us alive, church. Sets us on fire for the gospel. He changes us and molds us into tools used for His kingdom. Church, the same book, Ephesians, that tells us that we are saved um, and brought to Christ also warns us that we have an enemy. We have an enemy, right? And He wants us dead. In chapter 6, Apostle Paul warns us that we have to put Christ on daily to battle spiritual forces that we're up against. And we know who our enemy is, right? Satan. In the demonic realm that we used to live in. Remember verse 1-3? Verses 1-3, we saw we used to live there. But he's still tempting us. He's still tempting us to go back. The enemy of our souls is doing everything he can to stop God from producing good works through us. We need to be ready for war, church. Again, if this is it, conversion was the final go goal, then it then wouldn't really matter, right? Our final destination is heaven. Then what does it matter when we get there? But Christians, we are made to display God's glory to the universe. To make Jesus known to all the nations. To show the world who He is, right? And show them that we find our ultimate, ultimate pleasure in Him. We couldn't glorify God as spiritually dead, told to pray of sons of disobedience. But make no mistake about it, This is not us anymore. Please understand that. This is not you anymore. We are not in Adam. We are in Christ. Notice the contrast of how God sees us in Christ. The passage this morning tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, right? But now we are alive together with Christ. We were sons of disobedience and now we've been raised up with Christ. Did you get that? We're not a wretched man anymore. We're not wretched anymore. Not in our spirit. We are united to Christ. We were children of wrath and now we're seated with Christ. Having all the recipients of God's mercy, love, and His grace. A trophy to be displayed for all the world to see. As verse 10 says, we should walk in our good works. That is what we are saved for. Good works. But the enemy of our soul wants us to diminish God's glory through our poor testimony. That's what he wants. He wants us to be poor testimony to the world. He wants us to hide the light of the gospel in our comfortable settings. But you know what Satan doesn't want? I mean, you know what Satan doesn't want? He doesn't want any more disciples in the world, right? He definitely doesn't want more disciples in the world. If we are professing Christ, gathering, like we are today on Sunday, and keeping the gospel to ourselves, all through the week, He's satisfied. Right? He's satisfied. As long as we're keeping Christ in our hearts, as we sometimes say, and not proclaiming to the world, to the prince of the power of the air, He is satisfied. Church, we were reminded last Sunday, the glories of God's mission to bring the gospel to all people groups. Right? How powerful was that hearing that? We heard our sister Nadine's testimony of how she is displaying God's glory in Memphis. That is part of the works that we are saved for. The Great Commission is what God had prepared beforehand. Notice the outline. If you have it on you, it says, We have been saved for the Great Commission. We need to be serious, church, about our walk with the Lord. Every one of us, God's glory is on the line. If you are truly saved, you are a testimony to the world to show how powerful God is. We are to make Jesus known. Remember, Satan has been defeated at the cross. He has been defeated. We have been raised up, as verse 5 said, seated in the spiritual realm. The spiritual war has been won, right? We have victory. Yet Satan and sin and death. It's all been defeated, but church, we are called by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to play it out now, right? We are called to play this out, live out the salvation that has been fixed in the heavens. Ephesians 5.8 tells us, for at one time you were in the darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord, in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, Church, we need to stop believing the lies, the lies that the enemy whispers in our ear. We are no longer under the realm of Satan or under the the devil's control. We have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We have the body of, we have the, the spirit of Christ in us and beside us. John Newton, one of his poems, he says this, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge By the grace of God, I am what I am. Church, the Bible says, go, right? Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. The Great Commission says, all authority has been given to me. Don't miss that. Before he says go, he says, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop there. What else does he say? Baptizing them, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching. It's our call also to teach them all that I have commanded you, Jesus says. If you have been granted eyes to understand the Gospel, teach the Gospel. Teach the Gospel to your neighbor. If you found yourself here today seeing something in this passage that you might have missed before, I challenge you to passionately proclaim it. Proclaim it like the Apostle did. We are called to be the salt and the light of the church, of the world, church. This is how we display God's glory to the universe. This is how we demonstrate to the world that we are spiritually alive. We need to stand strong in the Lord. Stop acting like hypocrites. Show the world how powerful God's saving, sanctifying power is. Stand strong in the truth that we are no longer spiritually dead, no longer slaves to sin. We are spiritually alive And we are His workmanship. We need to display God's glory to the universe and not alone, not alone individually, but as a body of Christ. We're together on this. We are an army of God as the church. This is a glorious God-centered salvation. But we need to remember that it is all for God's glory. We need to ask ourselves, church, every decision we make, we have to ask ourselves, will this glorify God? Will this decision, this decision show how glorious of a trophy that I am in God's hand? Will this decision display to the world Christ saves to the uttermost? Will it show the demonic realm, as verse 7 says, the immeasurable riches of God's grace? Bottom line, we need to put on Christ daily, hourly, minute by minute. Church, as the third point tells us, we're in Christ to display God's glory to the universe. So, in closing, in closing, are you alive in Christ? If you, if not, come to Him today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. The devil wants us to say, we'll do it tomorrow, right? But we don't know if we're going to have tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised. Today is the day of salvation. There's no more excuses. There's no not more, there's no more excuses. You were told by God through his word today that you are dead in your sins without hope, but you were also given the gospel. Hope has come to you today in Christ. Turn from your sin and receive him. If you're a Christian and you've been a little lukewarm lately, I think right? Sometimes we are all uh accused of that and Forgetting who we really are in Christ. Put on Christ. You have been united to Him. Live out the salvation that's fixed in the heavens. Persevere in the faith for God's glory. Show the world that you have been saved to display God's glory to the universe and forever be motivated by those two words that brought you to life, but God. Let me pray. Oh, Father. Lord Jesus, Spirit of God, God, we bow before you, Lord, the triune God. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you so much. We would be so confused, so lost without your word. God, we thank you that you remind us here today who we are without you. But you remind us also that you are a loving, merciful, sovereign, kind, powerful God. Lord, help us. Help us walk out of here today, a transformed soul. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.